Good save, Liz. Um, and Ken, thank you. Nice assist. Uh, always a little nerve-wracking when you're preaching. You're like, oh, will this be the right passage? So, <laughs> well done. Um, I want to open with a prayer today, a little different. Uh, this is, I realize there's a lot of heavy things on a lot of us, and I want to pray a prayer in the words of somebody else. Um, sometimes those are, there are moments where you just need other, others' words to fill in for your own. Um, and this is from a 17th century uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. This is in page 646 of your Book of Common Prayer, if you want to look it up later. Um, and it's for the church. And so I want to just open with that before we get into God's word together. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. So today we're entering the part of the church calendar that is kind of the longest part of the calendar, and longest by quite a bit, actually. It's called the season after Pentecost. Sometimes we call it ordinary time. Um, in children's ministry, we often call it green growing season, um, which I love that. It's very evocative, and of course we picture that this time of year in our liturgical colors, right? Um, this idea of growth. And I love the way that the church calendar makes so much out of this season of ordinary time, normal growth. Because, you know, most of life happens there. Most of life is in the ordinary. We often think of the grand things, you know, the time we took the vacation and we went and did this thing, right? And, and we get excited about those moments in the church calendar, too, of, you know, Advent and Christmas and, you know, Ash Wednesday and Easter. But most of life happens in the normal, in the ordinary. We go to school, we go to work, we make meals, we eat them together, we do all those normal things of life, like love and laugh and live. It's precisely in those ordinary routines that we flourish and that we grow. Our gospel reading today, and really several of the gospel readings that are coming up as well, involve Jesus reflecting on how he calls us to follow him um, in the ordinary. So we want to look at that and reflect on that together today. Jesus' call to Matthew in today's reading is elegantly simple. Two words, follow me. Matthew's response is also very simple. The passage just says he rose and he followed him. Now, there's almost undoubtedly more to that story between Jesus and Matthew. Um, you know, you have to kind of wonder as you read it, like, okay, what did Matthew know about Jesus already? Probably something. Had they talked before? Had Matthew gone and listened to Jesus preach once, a lot? Um, had he seen his miracles, probably at least heard of the miracles? Seems like you couldn't have avoided at least hearing of them. But while all those details intrigue us, that's not really at the core of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so Matthew, who's writing this account about himself, right, his own call, he does not tell us his personal background. He doesn't give us those details. Instead, what he do does is gives us this setting, this background, that tells us not his story, but Jesus' story. And so I just want to review that very quickly to see, like, how has he set this up for us when he puts this call at chapter 9 and verse 9, which is where we started our gospel reading, what's come before? So in chapter 3, we see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus goes to John to be baptized, and John resists. He's, no, no, you know, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, let it be so. It's fitting 
to fulfill all righteousness. So John baptizes Jesus. The Spirit comes upon him. God says, this is my beloved son. And then in chapter 4, he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted. Sounds a lot like us, except he's tempted without sin. Not so much like us. And then he goes about preaching. Repent. Turn away from your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls disciples, um, Peter and Andrew, then James and John by the seashore. Um, and so we begin to see Jesus ministering. And then in chapters 5 to 7, he teaches about his kingdom. What does it mean to be part of my kingdom? This is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus lays out the kingdom way of living. And what's interesting about that, we're obviously not going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount this, morning, this afternoon, but what's interesting about that is it's both new and old. On the one hand, Jesus says, you know, I am affirming what God has always said. Not one jot, not one tittle of the law is passing away until everything is fulfilled. But on the other hand, people are at the end astonished at the way he's teaching with authority. And this is different than what they've been hearing from the scribes and Pharisees as they teach the law of God. And then in chapter 8, we see that that authority that Jesus has in teaching is followed by authority over disease. And it's disease both kind of near at hand and far away. So the chapter 8 starts with a leper coming to Jesus and wanting to be healed. And Jesus touches him and he heals the leper. And this is kind of shocking, by the way, because normally if you touched a leper, what would happen? You would be contaminated, right? So if you touch a leper, you're going to be impure. But Jesus touches a leper, and all of a sudden, they're both pure, right? Something different is going on. And then a centurion comes and says, I want you to heal my servant. And Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house. And he says, no, you have authority. You can just make it so. You can declare it. And so Jesus does. And sure enough, he heals the servant without ever even seeing him, without coming near him. Elsewhere in the chapter, he heals Peter's mother-in-law by a touch. He speaks a word, and demons leave demon-possessed men. He shows authority over nature. He calms a storm that threatens to engulf them. And he makes it clear that following him is going to be a costly endeavor. He says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and he demands everything from his followers, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Chapter 9, now we're right up before our reading today, begins with a paralyzed man being brought to Jesus. And Jesus begins, he first forgives that man's sins. He says, your sins are forgiven. And then and only then does he do the thing that the guys, you know, brought him for. He says, and I will heal you. And I will raise you up. So first he forgives his sins, then he heals his body. And what we're seeing here is Jesus has authority over both spiritual and physical sickness. And that's exactly what Matthew highlights in the verse that immediately precedes our gospel reading today. When the crowd saw it, in other words, they saw this declaration of forgiveness and of healing. When they saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. By setting up his own call to discipleship in this way, I think what Matthew is saying to us is, look, you don't need to know the details of my story. You don't need to know that. You don't need to know my story. You need to know his story. You need to know who he is. Because the reality is, we're all different. Our, my story is going to be different than Matthew's. Your story is going to be different than mine and Matthew's. But our call is the same. Follow me. That is what we share in common. And so what we need to know is, who is the one who's calling us? What does it mean to follow him? 
Now, Matthew, of course, gives the right answer. There's one right answer to the call, follow me, and that is to do it, not to discuss and debate and weigh pros and cons. Matthew rises and he follows Jesus. Two words, one action, and Matthew's whole life changes. Now, in his gospel, what's interesting is Matthew does actually, doesn't really specify for us where they go after the call. He just says a house. But in the parallel accounts in Luke and Mark, we find out this is actually Matthew's house they're going to. Um, and so what happens is essentially Jesus calls him. They go to Matthew's house, and Matthew, his first act as a disciple, really, is to throw a party for Jesus. Luke describes it as Matthew holds a great banquet for Jesus. Now, it's at this point in the story that something becomes clear to us that would have been like crystal clear to Matthew's original audience, or at least certainly original Jewish audience, from the very beginning. And it's this. Matthew's not the sort of person you would expect to be called. Like, Matthew, we don't know if he's a bad guy himself or not, but he is with the bad guys. Like, he's on the wrong side. He is a tax collector for the Romans. The Romans are this oppressive people who are taking money from God's people um, and doing terrible things to them. And Matthew is collaborating with that. He's helping support a foreign, godless empire over God's people. Everyone around him hates what he's doing, right? They see this as bad. And perhaps not surprisingly, when you look at the people who come to his house, they're kind of a similar group of people. I mean, these are people who are willing to accept an invitation to Matthew's place, right? And so those people, too, are not acceptable to the people who are serious about following God's law. And by eating with those people, tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is identifying with them. And so if you're looking at that as a sort of law-abiding Jew, you might say, seems like Jesus is being defiled. He's become impure. He's with the wrong people. But think back to our context again for a moment. Why is Jesus baptized back in chapter 3? Not because he needs to be purified. He doesn't need to be purified, which John recognizes. I, don't, I shouldn't baptize you. <laughs> it's like I should baptize everybody else, but not you. Jesus doesn't need cleansing, but we do. And so he says, it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. Why? He's entering our reality. He's cleansing us. He's tempted, but he doesn't sin. He touches a leper, but instead of being defiled, he purifies the leper. Here, too, we see Jesus entering their fallen reality, our fallen reality, to invite them into new life, into purity. So when the Pharisees, whose priority is to live and to teach God's law, ask the obvious question, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? This seems really like a very bad idea. Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There are three things I want to note for us here from what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus came to call everybody. No one is too bad for Jesus to want them to be part of his kingdom. Tax collectors who are helping fund a government that's oppressing and even killing God's people, and who are often, by the way, taking extra advantage on the side of God's people by soaking them for even more. Yep, Jesus says, I'm going to call them. Sinners who are actively violating God's law in a number of ways, including prostituting their bodies even. Jesus brings up that example later on in Matthew 21. Yep, Jesus says, I'm calling them too. In fact, I'm calling everyone who needs me, and the reality is everyone needs me. 
We get a picture of this every week when we come forward here to take the Eucharist together. We all come and we all need it. Whether we are rich or poor, young or old, powerful or powerless, whatever distinctions you want to bring out, we need to come forward. We need Jesus. We all share that need. And Jesus says, I have come to call all. I'm come to call tax collectors and sinners and me and you. Secondly, Jesus calls these people and us as they are and as we are, but he doesn't call them to remain as they are. Notice what he says. They have a need of a physician. I've come to call sinners. They need a physician. What do you go to a physician for? To make you well, not so you can continue in your sickness. And there are moments in our society today where it feels like we're called to celebrate sin and brokenness and call it good, and that's not what Jesus does. He does call the broken. He calls those in the depths of sin, right? People would have looked at Matthew and said, wow, that's pretty bad. But he doesn't call them so he can leave them there, leave them broken. He calls them so he can make them new, so he can heal them. When Matthew's called, he leaves his profession behind. The fishermen can go back and moonlight as fishermen, and we see that a couple times in the Gospels, but we never see Matthew going back and engaging in work that oppresses others. Jesus calls him while he's in his profession, but he also calls him away from it. Just as he will elsewhere tell those in a life of sin, you have to go your way and sin no more. Those who are called need to be transformed. Third thing we should notice from what Jesus says here is that Jesus shows us that what he is doing is what God has always been doing. Again, it's that kind of new and old thing that you see in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says here, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he is, of course, quoting from Hosea, which Maggie read for us a few moments ago. Jesus' listeners would have known the context of this, with God commanding Hosea that you need to love your wife even though she's unfaithful to you. And, of course, that was an example to Israel, to God's people, of this is what God does for you. He loves you, though you're unfaithful. Now, again, it can't stay there. In chapter 3, it's also clear Hosea's wife can't be fully restored to the marriage until she's purified of her unfaithfulness. And in the same way, we as God's people have to repent of our sins and come back to him. Look again at Hosea 5.15, where God says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. The prophet then goes on to proclaim, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So Jesus is doing a new thing, but it's a new thing that is what God has always done. Ever since we fell, God has said to us, I love you. I want you to be who you are created to be. So turn from your sins. Come back to me. Let me make you new. Or in Hosea's words, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And so even though the Pharisees here think they're like on this high ground of God's law and like we're the representatives of goodness and we're calling out Jesus for forgiving sins where he shouldn't and for eating with tax collectors and sinners and all these people who are doing morally bad things, they're really missing the point of the law. Yeah, those things are bad. Sure. They shouldn't be doing that. Yes, that needs to change. Sure. 
but it changes, God says, in relationship. It changes in calling sinners to repentance, not in standing there in condemnation, but in calling them to repentance, in healing the sick, both the physically sick and the spiritually sick. In case we missed the point of what Jesus is doing with this new way he's, he's, he's proclaiming, Matthew then goes on in the rest of chapter 9, you can read it on your own later, um, to give us four more examples of this kind of healing, right? So he really is he's kind of hammering this point home. First of all, there's the woman who has a flow of blood that physicians could not help for 12 years, but she comes to physician Jesus and he heals her. Then there's the girl who is beyond help of any human because she was dead and Jesus restores her to life. There are two blind men. They can't see, but Jesus gives them sight. There's a demon-possessed man who cannot speak, and Jesus casts out the demon, and he's able to communicate again. With each of these people, they are separated from the community of God's people. They are unable to be part of it, and Jesus brings them back. So what we see here is Jesus is doing God work. He is giving life where there is death. He is making new what has been broken. To be his disciples is to enter into that life and into that work. And in fact, in next week's reading, preview of coming attractions, um, we will see Jesus commissioning the disciples to go out and to participate in that work. I love the way that N.T. Wright translates uh, Jesus' exhortation to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8 during that, that sort of sending out, that commissioning. Wright translates it like this. It was all free when you got it. Make sure it's free when you give it, right? That's how we participate in God's work of righteousness, not by condemning the sinner, but saying it was all free when we got it. Let's make sure it's free when we give it. Because wherever we are, whoever we are, whatever our sins, Jesus looks at us just like he did at Matthew, the tax collector, and he says to us, follow me. And when we obey, he begins to transform us, which is just a fancy word for saying he changes us, right? From the inside out, he makes us different people. He makes us the people we were created to be. Our modern world loves the idea of being your authentic self. It's language I've heard a lot of in the last few years, and it's a really good idea, but it's one we often understand in maybe not the best ways. Our truly authentic self is not whoever I want to be with my very limited perspective on life, and it is limited, right? And my fallen desires, it's being who God made us to be. Who have I been created to be? That's who I should be. That's who I should want to be. And Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you. So let me offer two observations about what does it look like to follow Jesus toward becoming our authentic self, to being who he made us to be. And these two might seem a little intention or even contradictory, but I think they're both really core to what it means to be a disciple, and we've already seen hints of both of them in what we've talked about this afternoon. First of all, following Jesus is definitely a call to sacrifice. The disciples have to leave behind their professions because they're called to something higher. Later they will learn that to follow Jesus is to be like a servant, not a ruler. We don't get to have power over other people. We get to serve them. That's what Jesus does, and we're his followers. It's to take up your cross and to go with those who suffer and die, and quite likely to suffer and die yourself. It may mean following Jesus and having nowhere to lay your head. It might mean being separated from your family and leaving the dead to bury their own dead. This is a really hard call. And yet, at the same time, this is the second point about being disciples. Not only is being a disciple of Jesus a call to sacrifice, it is also a call to joy. 
isn't it amazing that the first thing Matthew does after he's called, like, leave behind the profession that he'd worked hard to get into and he'd sacrificed a lot, including his social respect, right, to do this, what's the first thing he does? He goes home and he throws a party. He celebrates. Why? He's been made new and he knows something's changed and this is good. Why are these people so happy when they get healed? Because they've been healed. They're well. They were sick. Those who are sick need a physician and Jesus comes along and says, you're healed. Welcome to your new reality. And so they party. In his excellent commentary on Matthew, R.T. France comments, following Jesus is not like discipleship as it was experienced in other pious circles at the time. It is characterized by joy rather than solemnity, by feasting rather than fasting. To follow Jesus is to find life on a new level. And so in a time with so much uncertainty in the church and in the world, what does it mean to both sacrifice and live a life of joy? What does it mean to obey and follow him in that? And I hope we will all prayerfully seek the Lord's face in asking exactly how he's calling each of us to live sacrificially and joyfully, to live in that tension, to live in that, that kind of paradox. Um, but I want to offer one closing thought um, and just a couple examples of, of this as we think about you know, what might this look like for us. And here's the thought. Move toward other people in love. I think that's what we see Jesus doing here, and I think it's what we're called to do too. And this is a word, I don't know about you, but I really need to hear this word right now. Um, it has been a really alienating few years in our society, and I don't have to tell you about that. Um, COVID, political polarization, scandals, the rise of virtual reality, which pushes us away from real reality. Um, all those things strain our relationships. They push us away from each other, and that's been hard. And Jesus, I think, calls us to say, like, move back toward each other. Move back toward more and deeper community with others. Get together with other people and center those gatherings around Jesus. And, you know, that doesn't have to be a Bible study or a prayer service. Um, I, given his guest list, I kind of doubt that Matthew's group was like, let's sit here and talk about the details of the law, right? It was a party. They were celebrating. But you know who was at the center of it? Jesus. He was there, literally. And we think about our own gatherings. How does Jesus come to be at the center? Each of us has his spirit. Each of us is called to embody him. How is he at the center of this? It was interesting. I had already prepped this message and thought about the, the you know, kind of application and, and so forth. And then we got invited, um, our family got invited to a kind of last second uh, birthday party last night. Um, and it was for uh, the immigrant family that we've ha had a relationship with for a while now. And they invited us, you know, Friday night. They were like, hey, come to the birthday party. And they're a family in a tough spot. Um, single mom um, who's, you know, her husband had left her and she has three kids. And they're trying to figure out how do we raise these kids, um, you know, as a community, but also to help support this mom on her own. And so it's a, it's a tough spot to be in. And what's interesting is that this was a birthday party for a nine-year-old girl, and it was that. And we had cake and we sang and we, you know, she blew out candles and all that. But it was also, they'd also invited the pastor of the church to come in and to pray. Um, and it was kind of intense, actually. Um, you know, I don't necessarily recommend this, by the way, for your kid's birthday party. I'm not sure they'll, they'll be happy with you if you do this at their party. But it was kind of like, a, it was about a 40-minute, I didn't time it, but it was probably about a 40-minute service um, around at this birthday party. There were at least three readings of scripture, at least three different prayers, one of which I think went at least seven minutes. Um, there was a, a short devotional, um, and there were three songs. This was all in Korean, so I'm not exactly sure what was said. Um, because I don't speak Korean, but it was intense, right? And, you know, it, it was long. I mean, like, again, I don't necessarily recommend this as a, your sort of new birthday party plan, but 
I love the spirit behind what they were doing because they're saying, you know what, when we gather and we're gathering to celebrate a birthday party, you know what else we're doing? We're gathering around Jesus and we're gathering to support this family and we're gathering to say, let Jesus be embodied here, right? Let, let him be at the center of who we are and what we do. And I thought, that's beautiful, right? It was also beautiful this weekend for me at a personal level. I mean, as it turned out, and I didn't organize any of these events, um, but as it turned out, I ended up getting to be with a lot of you at one event or another over the course of this weekend, and that was beautiful. And just, you know, even again, as I was re- preparing to say this, I thought, like, oh, it's beautiful that people are already inviting me into it. Like, you're, like, preemptively following the, the application, which is fantastic. Um, so just, you know, those moments of moving toward each other in love, connecting together as the body of Christ, fellowshipping together, um, as we do that, we strengthen each other in what it means to be disciples of Jesus. One last example. Today is actually the feast of St. Barnabas. And Barnabas is a powerful example of this. Of somebody who invited others into this and moved toward others in love, even when a lot of people did not want to do it. I mean, you think about Barnabas. This guy Saul shows up and he's like, hey, I want to be part of the church. And they're like, you were killing people last we checked. We don't really want to invite you in. Right? And Barnabas says, no, no, we're going to bring Saul in bring Saul in. And he does. We just read one of Saul, Paul's epistles. We're grateful for Paul. And we're grateful for Barnabas, who brought Paul in and says, this guy's okay. He's with us. Let's bring him in. Let's love him. Later on, Barnabas and Paul, of course, minister together. And they go on that first journey, and they take that guy, Mark, and Mark kind of flakes out a little bit and doesn't do what he should have done. And Paul's like, I'm done with Mark. We're going to find a better, you know, person to go along with us next time. And Barnabas says, you know, I think we need to move toward Mark in love. I think Mark has something to offer. They go their separate ways. Barnabas does move, in, move toward Mark. He does bring Mark along in ministry. And by the end of his life, Paul will say, Barnabas was right. Mark is useful for ministry. That's a beautiful example of living in love and moving toward each other in love. So, Church of the Redeemer, in all of this, let's remember whose disciples we are. Let's remember to move toward each other in love, remembering that we are Jesus's, and he looks at us, he looks at you, he looks at me, and he says to each of us, follow me in sacrifice, follow me in joy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.